It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Inside Sources with Boyd Matheson. One of the pieces of the infrastructure bill that has been touted by President Biden, he even echoed that in New Hampshire today, is the expansion of broadband into rural areas. Many conservatives don't like the idea of government getting into the broadband business. Question is, is there a role uh, for a public option there? And what is the best way? That's the real important question. What's the best way to give more people access to the Internet? Uh, really pleased to have joining us now on the program, uh, Jeffrey Westling, a former resident fellow of technology and innovation at the R Street Institute. In fact, had a uh, post on R Street Institute blog about these barriers to broadband deployment that caught our eye today. And uh, Jeffrey, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, so so break it down for us just a little bit. Uh, obviously, the president is going to tout this as a, as a big win, big win for those in rural areas. Uh, what is it really? What's the reality of it? I mean, this is a big win in terms of of the politics of it. You know, this is a big, you know, infrastructure bill that's going towards broadband deployment. And there is a good justification to be spending a little bit of money here or there uh, to get those really hard to reach areas connected to broadband. Right now, there's just some communities, it's just too expensive for a private carrier to to justify the cost of deploying the infrastructure, deploying the the necessary like pipes and wires and everything to get those folks connected. Um, so there is a reason to have some additional support there to reach those truly hard-to-reach areas. Uh, my worry is when they start going to the areas that are already served and they're getting funding to overbuild, essentially. So you have a network that already exists, and the government steps in and says, well, we want the speeds to be higher, or we want this specific technology. And uh, this bill does a pretty good job of still focusing on the unserved areas first, but there is open room there for what that could mean in terms of, of going to some of those unserved areas or underserved areas, as the term may be. Um, as well as who may be the the one deploying those networks, whether it be a private industry or the government. Yeah, so interesting. Let's so let's unpack that just a little bit. Uh, so first, obviously, with the rural areas, there are some places that uh, are just not going to be uh, feasible or profitable for a, a business venture to to get onto that. And I and I always think of that kind of in the in the kind of Lincoln terms, and as he did infrastructure, uh, but it wasn't so much about connecting cities or places. It was about connecting people to people. Uh, because he knew that's where opportunity was. And it seems to me that that part does make sense, uh, especially for, for folks that are out in those places that just are never going to get uh, anything from, from the private sector. Yeah, no, definitely. And and I think that, you know, broadband right now is such an essential component to our lives and the connectivity it provides is just it opens so many different doors. And for those those truly unserved areas, it really is an important thing for us to make sure we get those folks connected and get them um, you know, tuned into what's going on and, and, and into the modern kind of economy, right? We don't want them to not be able to participate because they just don't have that connection. Yeah. One of the things that you uh, expand in your in your piece uh, is that, you know, we have – so we do have to remove some barriers, uh, some regulatory things and that, that, that make it hard even in some of these uh, – not just the super remote, but even some other places uh, that make it more difficult to get, you know, broadband and infrastructure pieces in in the first place. 
Yeah, definitely. One of the big problems we have right now is that the, it's still pretty expensive to go through the local processes, right? You need to get access to the public rights of way so you can string wires up to poles or, you know, install a, a new, you know, cell tower. And a lot of the times these local governments use this as a, as a tool to, to raise some revenue by, you know, uh, charging more than it costs them to actually regulate those rights of way, or they're just slow to get through the process. And, you know, streamlining those processes is going to make it cheaper to deploy and makes it so that more communities are, you know, a good investment. Um, there's also things like pole replacements where, you know, a, a, a provider needs to replace an, a utility pole because it just can't support the new equipment, but uh, that pole needed to be replaced regardless. And now the provider has to pay rather than the original pole owner. So there's just a lot of little uh, things that are a little more mundane than, than what you're going to be hearing about in, in from, from the Biden administration, but that have a real impact on deployment and, and streamlining those and making it easier to get through these, these bureaucratic processes are just going to make it easier for, for carriers to get out there and get those folks connected. Yeah. Uh, you also mentioned in there that uh, we also have to be careful, obviously, when we're doing this kind of money and this kind of, of reach, uh, that there there's always that potential for sort of the waste, fraud, and abuse categories uh, to emerge that often end up hurting those that you're supposed to be helping, both in terms of access and in terms of cost. Yeah, definitely. Um, the, one, the big concerns we've been seeing throughout all these processes is just how much of, 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 a, of the funding is going to go to a specific technology, a specific um, you know, tool. And right now, the, the big discussion has always been fiber. The, 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 the Biden administration originally had made it sound like they wanted to do fiber to every home in the country, and we're going to only allow fiber subsidization there, but there's a lot of different technologies that can reach these areas, satellites, fixed wireless, you know, mobile networks. There's a lot of really interesting use cases there that might be a lot cheaper or might be more flexible for those users that are in those truly hard to reach areas. And we don't want the government basically coming out at the forefront and saying, this is the only way we can do things. And, and if we don't do it this way, it's going to be a failure because if we do it that way, it'll just, you know, waste a lot of consumer mo- uh, funds and go to these uh, projects that could have been best suited elsewhere. Yeah, if you're just joining us, we've got uh, Jeffrey Westling on the line with us, a former resident fellow of technology and innovation at the R Street Institute. And so often as we, we look at these kinds of things, uh, I had one person the other day say, you know, when we look at all of this, especially as it relates to technology, uh, that the federal government in particular is so slow on so many of these things, you know, do we end up building something that will be a decade old and obsolete by the time we get it done? And and how do we get to the right balance? What is that proper role and, and proper balance? Well, yeah, so I think that comes into play in a couple of regards. The, the talk about government-owned networks is one that's been really worrying for me. A lot of folks want the governments, the local communities, to actually own and operate their own broadband networks. And to your point, the government's really slow, and they aren't good at investing uh, additional funding out after the initial uh, upfront cost because these networks are expensive to maintain. They're expensive to upgrade. You don't want those slow processes going through. And if you want this money to be effective, what you do is you you make it easier for the private market to operate. And and what the the market does is that it's operating very quickly because they're facing these competitive restraints or uh, constraints by other uh, broadband providers. So if you want this to be really reactive, you, you help out at the on- outset by getting some of the, this funding to these areas, but you also just get the government out of the process and make it easier for the market to really determine, you know, what is the best technology here? What is the best service offering here? What can we do to, to, to speed things up? And, and that, to me, is the big thing. Just getting the government out of the way is going to, to ensure we have that flexibility. Yeah, it is one of the things that we often see, especially in these kind of massive bills, is that they're, the, the government is good, as, as you rightly pointed out, Jeffrey, really good at the upfront money, not so much on the maintaining, sustaining, or upgrading 
component in terms of innovation. So often it's it's the old adage of, you know, we're fighting the last war. And uh, again, we might be building a technology for rural communities that locks them uh, further behind the advancements and access uh, rather than moving it forward. Uh, real quickly, Jeffrey, before I let you go, uh, any last thoughts or anything else that you're going to be watching closely as this actually starts to get implemented now that it's been signed into law? Yeah, I think the the big thing to be watching is just how the the, um, the process goes at the NTIA. Basically, states are going to be filing uh, different plans with the with the NTIA, and we're going to be seeing some guidance on how the funding can be used. So, what we're going to be really looking for is just um, the the requirements that the NTIA puts on these these plans, and and kind of the the focus on where they want to spend the money. We we might see the NTIA really focused on government networks or electric co-ops. The or we might see them really kind of going back towards the market and letting the, the existing providers just expand coverage out. So it'll be interesting. That's what we're really going to be watching is just the interactions between the NTIA and the local governments. Fantastic. Jeffrey Westling, a former resident fellow of technology and innovation at the R Street Institute. Great piece uh, on the R Street blog today. Uh, Jeffrey, thanks for joining us. We'll have you back as we watch this thing unfold in the months ahead. Great to talk with you. Thank you. All right. Thanks. That's Jeffrey Wessling again, a former resident fellow at the R Street Institute. Uh, earlier today, uh, we had a, a real fascinating webinar for World Trade Center Utah uh, on the problems of Afghanistan, the lessons learned there, how we should approach that part of the world in maybe a little different way, a little more focused way. Uh, we, we got to hear from uh, former Ambassador Grossman, and uh, it was just really interesting to look at it from what is the impact on Utah? What is it? really mean? What lessons did we learn coming out of Afghanistan? How does that relate to the region as a whole uh, as we look at uh, what lies ahead? And in particular, what does it mean for businesses uh, right here in the state of Utah who are interacting with that region of the world? And so coming up next, we're going to dive in a little bit to that webinar. We're going to give you a few little behind the curtain peeks at uh, what that conversation sounded like. Again, lessons from Afghanistan and what comes next Stay with us here on KSL News Radio. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office to meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.